Welcome to the Men of Magic, an interview podcast that gets into the lives of your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. With your host, Robert Martin, and now the Men of Magic begins. Welcome to another episode of the Men of Magic. This week, I'm with the gentleman who has come up with, you've all heard of Magic TV, you've all heard of the Magic Show, but the next show in line that's right there with them is called The Professors. It's on blackboarder.com, and it's the brainchild of my next guest. It's Anthony. Hi, uh, I'm Anthony Palmerio. I create the professors for Blackboarder and MTGCast. Um, I've been doing it for about three years now, and I'm really excited for this MTGCast interview. I listen to every MTGCast show, um, literally every podcast. I love Monday Night Magic, um, and I'm a huge fan of magic shows, podcasts, articles, thing in general. Well, we had a question right away, and that's by Eric. You've heard him on a lot of podcasts, The Watchman. He asked about starting an MTG cast and how he's able to cast with us and Black Border. Uh, how I'm able to, to yeah. cast with? You mean Black Border letting me yeah. cast with MTG cast? Yes. Yep. Um, well, I started with MTG cast. Um, actually, sort of, um, I, I always liked film, and uh, I found YouTube like six years ago, five, six years ago. Um, and I saw these Lego animations, and uh, I actually started when I was, like, 11, doing, like, some really stupid Lego animations. Um, and then I went into talking about magic uh, before uh, a lot of shows had come out, but it was just, you know, it wasn't a real formal show. It was just talking about the cards, and obviously I was, I was like, 11 or 12 at the time, so I didn't really know what I was talking about. Um, but then I started doing something called The Professors, uh, not, not the current version of The Professors. There was a version before it. Um, and I did about, I think, like 20 shows of that um, on a different channel, which I now closed. Um, and then three years ago, in the beginning of 2008, um, I released uh, some world videos um, on The Professors, and those became the first two episodes of The, the Real Professors. Uh, and since then, I've advanced the show a lot. Uh, it's changed a lot. The, the writing has changed, the number of people involved. Uh, and then around episode 80... Uh, we got hired by Black Border, but, you know, we we're still doing the show for MTG Cast. And uh, my deal with Black Border, part of it was that I uh, got to keep the show on MTG Cast. And, uh, you know, they were totally okay with that. They thought it was great advertising. Um, I do know, I do think that they have some problems with uh, other podcasts being on MTG Cast and Black Border. Like, I think the Super Sunday show might have not have been allowed to post on MTG Cast because they were posting on Black Border, but I guess because we were on YouTube. Uh, it was okay that we had several uh, uh, platforms. Well, let's go to the fact of being hired by Black Border or when they came to you. What was that like when Black Border came to you and said, we'd like to have your your show on our site? Um, well, what happened was uh, LSV used to uh, write and make videos for Black Border. Um, and he saw Black Border as uh, kind of a dead end, Um and so he went off to start Channel Fireball, to be on Channel Fireball. Um, and so they had, like, an open casting call for a video. Have, um, every week they would have uh, a video contest. And, uh, you know, we kept winning the video contest, and every time we'd just submit what I thought was a better and better episode of The Professors, and that was a, a time when the show progressed uh, really, really rapidly in terms of uh, the journalism style and... Uh, how we talked about magic and what we talked about in the shows. And we got a lot of feedback, which was cool. Uh, and then we won like uh, three or $400 from Black Border. And then they're just like, yeah, we, we really don't want to pay you this much for one show every week. So we're just going to hire you uh, and pay you a lot less. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. Now, you have tremendous list of pros on the website. And you actually were able to interview some of them in one of your shows. How did that work out, and how did that all get together? Right. Um, so that was actually that was a cool idea. Um, it was not, it wasn't my idea. It was, uh, there's, you know, there's six people that work on The Professors right now. Uh, not not constantly. But uh, uh, Nick, who's a friend of mine who uh, writes a lot, um, and he's actually, he's written a lot of articles that he, he asks that he just, uh, his names are in the, his name's in the credits, but he asks that I don't, like, write specifically what articles he wrote because he thinks that the articles he writes are, uh, he doesn't think they're that good, but I think they're uh, they're very close to my writing style, and they're great, 
uh, not just because of that. They're, they're very good. Um, his writing style is incredible, and he's very analytical, and he goes very in-depth when he's talking about magic in general. Um, so he suggested that uh, I, I couldn't go to uh, a um, pre-release to record, and I usually do that every time. And, um, you know, that was when I started doing that, it was admittedly a, a blatant copy off what the Magic Show did. And um, going to a pre-release, interviewing people, and a lot of people realized that if you get the opinions of pros, you know, it seemed to be worth a lot more than the opinions of casual players because a lot of people discredit casual players, and they shouldn't um, discredit a lot of, you know, local and casual players because a lot of local and casual players do have a lot of ideas, a lot of very open-minded ideas that a lot of pros don't seem to have or that the hive mind hasn't really uh, assimilated yet. So, uh, but I couldn't record at a uh, local shop. So I recorded, I, I just sent out emails asking for, you know, people to record themselves answering. And I got, you know, uh, three, four pros, and that was cool. Um, and I was hoping to do it again for the uh, new Phyrexia pre-release, but uh, unfortunately we didn't get enough responses. Um, but, you know, maybe for Magic 2012 we'll be able to do it. And, you know, I think it's uh, it's a great uh, feedback, and it really shows uh, how expansive the game is and, you know, where everyone was coming from. There were people in Germany. There was uh, Lino Burgold responded from Germany. Um, Matteo Orsini-Jones responded from the U.K. Um, and Andreas Gans, who's the editor of Black Border, responded from Switzerland. Um, and all these pros and had such an amazing uh, and great response to all the questions. Well, that was a really fascinating episode to me. I really liked when you, like I said, any time, like you just said, that you get a professional to respond to something like this, to be able to give their insight, especially how it was cut up, I thought was really good because you got the right amount of opinion from them on each subject, which was really cool. And it's also nice because you don't hear, orally hear them talking a lot. You read their articles, but you don't actually hear them talking to you. And it's actually nice to actually hear the opinion of writers like that. The show is, like you said, it's evolved over time. And you said you have a staff of six? That we're going uh, yeah. They, um, when I say that, I mean like, uh, uh, really, it's just me and Nick do the writing uh, most of the time. You know, it's a it's a really big show. If I did it by myself, I don't think I'd be able to get it done uh, every week or every two weeks or whenever it happens to come out. Um, and I, I I am late a lot of the time. Uh, Blackboarder should really fire me. I'm I'm really bad with dates. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's just me and Nick doing the writing sometimes, and then. Uh, you know, uh, uh, my friend Andrew had the idea to do these uh, comics, and so those are some of the comics uh, that we put on the show. And, you know, the show, I think the show has evolved, and I think episode about 100 was, like, about the point where we got the knack of really, um, you know, talking about uh, Tier 1 decks in Standard or uh, talking about the top strategy in Limited and, you know, not getting too many people to call us out on it. Before that, we got lots and lots of people to call us out on it, and we were making predictions um, and a lot of our predictions actually ended up being right or close to right or, like, in a lot of people's opinion, should have been right, which seems to be the important thing for uh, making predictions on, you know, products and magic or themes and magic or cards and magic. Well, one of the things that you did on one of the latest episodes was when people said, oh, how was your testing for it? And you tested over 2,000 games. How long did it take you guys to test all these deck variants to get to 2,000. Right. So um, that's where all six people come in. That's where, uh, you know, we really work together as a team. We, uh, we all go on Cockatrice or we all go on Workstation, um, and we shuffle up pretty much every deck we can think of. Um, there was one card that we missed from the metagame, and that was Spellskite. Uh, admittedly, I didn't expect it to be as important to the metagame as it was, but clearly because of Deceiver Exarch being a... Uh, a real deck, or it seems like a real deck based on the, um, not this previous Star City Games, but a Star City Games open from two weeks ago. Um, it, we missed that card, but other than that, um, you had said on MTG Cast that we were testing the post-New Phyrexia metagame before New Phyrexia had come out, and Conley said, well, they're, they're testing the, uh, the pre-New Phyrexia metagame, they're testing against the pre-New Phyrexia metagame. Um, but you were actually right in saying that we were testing the, uh, we were testing the metagame. We were really 
by the point we got to those 2,000 games and by the point we had uh, figured out the Callblade was still the best deck, that Darkblade had uh, some variation, you know, cutting out Squadron Hawks, putting in Vampire Nighthawks or Mirror Crusaders, things like that. Um, we did figure out, we, we really did figure out the metagame. And if you look at a lot of our lists there, uh, it's Callblade, and then, you know, it's some attempts to beat it with the Deceiver Exarch deck and decks like that, and decks that I think will show up eventually. Um, but, you know, basically we came to the conclusion that Callblade and Darkblade Still the best decks, and, you know, the Star City Games open series reflects that. Um, and I was really uh, proud and impressed with the fact that we could get to that. Are you concerned at all that the next GP, not Nagoya because that's Block, will they change it, or will it, you, do you still think it'll be Cobblade? Um, if the GP does change it, it will be because either Stoneforge, Stoneforge Mystic and or Jace will be banned. Um, and I, I firmly believe that Stoneforge, Stoneforge Mystic is uh, very, it's much closer to the ban hammer than Jace, uh, because Wizards is so likely to ban a tutor card. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I feel like uh, tutor cards are first on the chopping block because they have so much utility. You know, Stone, Stoneforge Mystic can search up uh, tons of equipments that do tons of things. Uh, and you would think you need a body to put them on, but then you have a batter skull, you have a turn three, four, four, flash, vigilance, lifelink. Um, so it's, uh, it, it's a little too diverse of a card, I think. And I think the same is true with Jace. And when you have cards that are too diverse, um, they do incredible things in Callblade and they, um, really make Callblade an unfair deck. Um, you know, it's not Squadron Hawk that makes Callblade an unfair deck. It's, it's not Preordain or even Mandalay that makes um, uh, uh, Callblade an unfair deck. Although, if those cards were reprinted in M12, and, uh, you know, Jason Stoneforge Mystic cycled out, and we still had all the equipments, I think Callblade could still be a deck, but it wouldn't be the same powerhouse that it is now. And to beat it, to beat out Callblade, and to beat out, uh, their counter, counter spells, the utility of their counter spells, and the utility of their draw and search, uh, there's gonna need to be a banding. Let's talk about your favorites block you played in. Uh, favorite block. Yeah. Um, sorry. No problem. Um, like, uh, where the, like, where the block was new, like, but the standard format or the block itself? Um, I think it was, I think it was, uh, Shards of Alara because there were, uh, there were unfair decks. Um, you know, you had Jund, uh, you had Five Color Control and the beginning of when just Shards was out, you had Fairies. Um, but I really liked, uh, five color control. And I think it was a very, even if it was just one deck, it felt like a lot of different decks and it felt like you could take the deck in a, a lot of different directions. Um, you know, even if, even if it was a dominant deck, uh, there has, there's been a dominant deck since, uh, you know, since affinity, I think, or before that, there's goblins and onslaught. Um, probably, I don't know, maybe apocalypse was the last time where there wasn't a dominant deck. Um, but I felt like Fire of Color Control, even though it was a dominant deck, you could take it in several directions, and, you know, a good Fairies player could still be, a good Blackwood Tokens player could still beat it, um, and, you know, eventually a good Jun player could still beat it. Okay, then what's your favorite deck to play? Um, I would have to say my favorite deck to play is actually, I really do like playing Callblade, because, in Standard, at least, because um, it's, it's a very... It's kind of an unfair deck if your opponent is not properly equipped to deal with Jace, uh, Squadron Hawk, Stoneforge Mystics, uh, which is to say if they're not playing Squadron Hawk, Stoneforge Mystics, and Jaces, uh, which is unfortunate, and that's why I think the, the format right now is terrible. However, in a perfect world where pretty much everybody's playing Callblade because it's the best deck and, you know, it has, like, 7 out of 8 top 8 spots or, like, 13 out of 16 top 16 spots, um, and you're just playing mirror matches... Um, and hypothetically, if there was like no time limit on uh, on anything, uh, I think that would be. I think it's a very skill intensive match, and uh, I kind of do like uh, playing Callblade. You were watching the coverage this weekend. Yep. Did you see the finals of the standard event? Yes, I think that was a um, that was a pretty good example of a very skill intensive match because it went on for the the third game yes. went on for uh, basically like an hour. And uh, what happened was it was a Callblade player versus a Darkblade player, and the Darkblade player had one dismember left in his deck. 
Um, and the Callblade player basically had, he had an Ink Moth Nexus, and he had a, a ridiculous amount of damage on board, and his opponent had a ridiculous amount of blockers on board. Um, but the, uh, the, the, Call, the Callblade player had Ink Moth Nexus, and he held back from activating the Ink Moth Nexus until he got a Sun Titan, um, because he didn't want the Ink Moth Nexus to get dismembered in a response to a sort of Feast and Famine and sort of War and Peace equipment. Though if he had actually done the sort of Feast and Famine and sort of uh, War and Peace equipment, he would have put his opponent on a two-turn Poison Clock. Um, but I, I think the fact that he was able to restrain himself and wait for the Sun Titan so that if the Zinc Moth Nexus did die, he could get it back with the Sun Titan was uh, an incredible line of play. And people were questioning why he was doing that and, you know, why he was waiting so long. And he was, he was it looked like he was slow rolling it. And, you know, they got to the point where they had, like, ten cards left in their deck each. Um, but it was it was a very skill-intensive, very calculated play. It was impressive. Now, are you a fan of Legacy? Um, I, I am a fan of Legacy uh, because of skill, but I think the cost is getting more and more ridiculous. Um, and that's, I, I think, I don't think overextended is a good solution to that problem because I think it's going to be equally as expensive. Um, but I think there there might be a new solution, like you guys talked about um, on Monday Night Magic and Modern, might be a might be a decent solution for both Magic Online and uh, real life. Now, you said you play on Cockatrice and Magic Workstation. Do you do any MTGO? Um, I do some MTGO for drafts, but uh, not much for um, anything else because uh, basically it's, you know, the expense of investing in uh, another collection. It's uh, kind of too much. Now, when you draft, what do you like to draft? Um, I like to draft blue because I feel like it's, you know, at our at our store, there uh, there's a, a contest where if you can win two out of four uh, tournaments a month, you get a uh, you get to go to the store for uh, another free month of draft. And uh, there's a kid at uh, our store um, who has continually gotten free drafts every month for uh, almost a year now, and uh, he always drafts blue. He always forces blue. And uh, basically, all he does is force blue pack one, and his blue might stink pack one, and his, some of his blue might stink pack two. But uh, he just gets blue in another color. He jams them into one deck, and uh, he wins off of play skill. And uh, I think blue has the greatest uh, amount of margin of error for um, you know tricking your opponent with play skill. I also think it's like the sneakiest color, and I also think it's the most unfair color in uh, limited. But uh, it's definitely the most skill intensive, and that's why I like it. You and Luis would have a very good time together because you both love blue. He's uh, he's always talking about how blue is the best color in every uh, limited format. Do you actually do any sort of major tournaments? Um, I I try. Um, uh, I the the best record I've ever actually had at a at a major tournament was a uh, I was uh, I was thirteen. And uh, I went to a PTQ with, uh, it was extended, and I went to a PTQ with Zoo. And I went 6-1, and uh, it was an eight-round tournament. And then I had to drop, because uh, my parents were had driven me there, because I was 13 at the time. And uh, they were like, oh, come on, we're tired, it's like 9 o'clock at night. <laughs> um, but other than that, yeah, I've, uh, you know, top six, I've top 16 in some tournaments. Um, I don't get around to playing as much um Real magic is I'd like to, and that's uh, that's actually partially because of the show and uh, how much time it takes. In addition to uh, school. So, what are you going to school for? Um, well, I'm I'm a junior now in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to go to school for film uh, to be a director and a screenwriter, um, either to to USC or NYU maybe. Um, and uh, I made a, a film that's on the professor's channel. It's called uh, Residence of a Heart. Um, it's, a, it's a drama slash romance, um, and uh, you know, check it out later. Let me know what you think. How do you balance in high school? Life's coming together for you. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're experiencing new things. High school's real intensive. How do you juggle being a high school student, doing this, and still having fun? Um, yeah, I... Uh, I, I feel like I get really stressed out sometimes, and uh, I feel like I like even when I'm talking on the show and you know trying to go through uh, all the words in the show in like a, an hour period because it's really like all the time I have to do it, um, and it's, it's a lot of material to go through in an hour. 
um, and get all, get right. Uh, I feel like I, I sound really tense, and uh, I've, I've been doing an audio podcast called uh, Crucible of Worlds, which is about uh, designing sets, and uh, I feel like I'm a little less tense than that, and uh, I'm kind of glad that I don't sound as tense in that, but yeah, at school, I'm, I'm really tense with uh, studying. Um, I try not to be tense when I'm, you know, doing film stuff, like directing or screenwriting. Um, even now, like, I, I can hear the tenseness in my voice, and I, I always hate it. Um, but, you know, I think being kind of on edge uh, helps you get stuff done. The one thing that I hear from people that listen is that you've done a great job of incorporating enough graphic knowledge like when you run your deck lists on the screen they're slow enough that people can read them and write them down and not have to stop and rewind and stop and rewind and that you give great detailed explanation of where you're going with stuff and a lot of times with podcasts or videos or whatever a lot of times the person will talk right through it instead of allowing the person to take that second to absorb it, and that's one thing that I've heard from people that you guys do really, really well. That moment in time when you say, and here's the deck list, and it's that slow roll of the deck list on the screen, and everybody seems to enjoy that. It, it brings a different element to your show that other shows don't have. Great. Uh, thank you. It's, uh, yeah, I, I know I'm, I'm really tense when I, when I go through the whole show, but uh, I'm glad to, I, I try to give those breaks, and a lot of people say I go through the show too fast um, and a little too tense. I've been trying to slow down, and uh, I was listening to, like, some older episodes, like uh, the 80s and the 90s episodes, and I, I did go much faster, and uh, I've been doing a little better job slowing down, and now that we don't have a time limit for uh, posting videos on YouTube, um, it's it's nicer, and we can take those 20 seconds for a deck list. Um, and, yeah, I really enjoy... Um, you know, going in depth with the deck list and I enjoy putting the music out there because, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, uh, I, I think good music on the show. Um, a lot of Death Cab, uh, it's a great bands. Um, actually had a, I, I had a question for you, um, about, uh, film and music because, uh, I heard the, uh, the Jins interview and, uh, Chris Otwell and him were talking about, um, being a, a good movie critic. And, uh, I was actually wondering what are your, uh, favorite films, favorite TV show, favorite plot-based web series that's not related to magic, and favorite band. Oh, wow. Man. Favorite band? My favorite band is Seven Dust, and that's because they're kind of cutting edge and different, which is what I enjoy. Another good one. Uh, favorite movie? Right off the top of my head? Wow. Ironically, I would say it's it would be episode... Line of the series, it would be episode six of Star Wars. The last, the actual last one, which would be the third one, if in the series, that's my favorite. And then, what was the first one again? Apologize. Uh, favorite TV show or favorite non-magic web series? Oh, uh, favorite TV show. <laughs> For me, I love. It's the first twenty-four where they spend the first 24 hours trying to investigate a crime. And a lot of it has to go with the fact that my grandfather was a police officer, and he always talked to me about what it was like to investigate crimes and things like that, and I guess that's always been a fascinating thing to me. You did send out a Facebook message to some of us asking about uh, a bunch of magic things. Is this something you're going to bring on a future show? Um, I, I was I was trying to. It was for the uh, the new Frexia pre-release, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So I sent that out to a lot of people. Um, a lot of work goes into the show, other than you know the the fifteen twenty hours that I was trying to. It was for the uh, the new Frexia pre-release, right? Um, yeah. So I sent that out to a lot of people. Um, a lot of work goes into the show, other than you know the the fifteen twenty hours that goes directly into the writing, the editing, the um, post-production. Um, you know, all the testing. Um, and a lot of that is, you know, contacting pros, reading articles, listening to podcasts, um, which is the part I really like to do. Um, but so I, I tried to contact a lot of pros, um, and a lot of, you know, magic personalities like yourself, a lot of people that, you know, people in the magic community want to hear from, want to listen to. 
Um, and unfortunately, I, I think I cut the deadline a little short. I only gave people like uh, three or four days, um, which I think was the, uh, I cut the deadline a little short. So, uh, but it was for the, it was for a pre-release episode and, uh, I hadn't recorded, uh, at the local store, um, which I regret. But, uh, so I didn't get enough responses. Um, uh, Gavin Verhey and, uh, uh, Tristan Sean Gregson from, uh, uh, TSG from Channel Fireball responded. Um, and I really want to use their, what they said, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to, um, but, you know, two interviews doesn't make a, a whole pre-release show, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, we're going to try it again for Magic 2012. Anybody who wants to respond and anybody who has an opinion, I'll be happy to put in the show. Um, you know, whether you're a pro or not, whether uh, you've been playing Magic, when you, whether you've been playing Magic for one year or ten, um, you know, I, I always like to hear from everybody. You did say earlier you get a lot of feedback. Positive, negative. How do you incorporate that into the show? We uh, we do get uh, a lot of a lot of YouTube comments. Um, well, uh, like not a lot of YouTube comments, but a, a decent amount of YouTube comments. Uh, you know, not as much as um, like say the Magic Show would get because it's you know ten times as big as we are, um, or like Magic TV. Um, but we get, you know, 30, 40 YouTube comments. Um, and like, usually half, about half and half are, uh, positive and negative. Um, but you know, it's, it's been getting more positive, which makes me feel like I'm doing the show a little better every time. Um, and then we'll get, uh, some, e- we'll get a lot of emails actually, um, which I assume has to do with MTG cast and Blackboard and people watching through there. Um, I put my email on every show. Um, it's apalm9292 at yahoo.com, um, which should probably make a, a show Yahoo account or something. Um, but so a lot of them are people uh, asking about deck lists, which, you know, you can't post on YouTube comments because they're too long. Um, people asking about deck lists, asking about how we tested this, this, and this, and why our testing is valid, uh, if they should, if somebody, uh, somebody should take uh, this deck to a, uh, for, uh, to a tournament or uh, if this deck's good in a format. And, you know, I love responding to those. And, uh, you know, some other people on the professors uh, help with responding to that. So uh, it's, it's really cool getting all the, the responses. And, uh, you know, if we if we uh, mention a concept on the show, um, I try to uh, plug somebody uh, if they sent it in an email or a comment. Um, and uh, other than that, I, you know, I respond to people in comments saying uh, if they point out something that I did wrong, I'll put, like, an annotation saying thanks. Um, other than that, um, you know, I just I love the feedback we get. I love that people, you know, respect us as Magic players, even though that we're not pros, which is something, uh, it's asking somebody something that's really hard to do. How does that make you feel that you're putting out something of this quality at such a young age? Um, thank you. Um, I, I don't want to sound... Uh, one of the things that I think you're you're prone to doing in uh, in Magic is if you you talk too much and you have uh, kind of a, a closed mind on um, what you're talking about, you you tend to sound arrogant. And I, I really try I try not to do that. And I, sometimes I'm afraid that I do come off that way on the show, or you know, come off that way because I, I sound kind of tense when I talk. Um, but uh, you know, the important thing is that. Uh, I don't think age matters in Magic. You know, you see AJ Kerrigan, who's, uh, you know, 13, 14 year old, and he was on the professors before, uh, um, he went like seven and one or something in a legacy tournament. Um, now he's writing for Star City Games and he's, uh, he's very humble. Um, he has an incredible writing style, uh, for eight, for a 14 year old. Um, you know, he's a lot younger than me. He's putting out an incredible product. But compared to someone like Evan or someone like uh, the people on uh, Magic TV, like LSD and TSG, um, you know, I don't, I don't think of it in terms of age, um, you know, uh, and uh, in terms of how uh, the work's going to evolve. I just, I think uh, everyone helps the game, no matter how old they are. You know, um, if somebody's 13 or somebody's 37, it doesn't make a difference um, in terms of the work that, um, if they put in, uh, the work, the, uh, what they should get back for their work. So when you get done with high school and start the college run, 
and I'm sure you know college is a whole different world. There's going to be even more time commitments on you. How are you going to manage to keep the professors going? <laughs> um, well, the the show has been, if you noticed the last the last couple of months, because uh, I've been doing you know lots of college tests and uh, big high school tests and SAT tests, stuff like that, um, and I imagine it's going to be just as time-consuming in high school. Um, you know, the show's only been going up, like, every two weeks a lot of the time instead of every week or every three weeks. Um, we've been really bad with the with the schedule, and uh, I think Blackboard is pretty pissed at us for it. <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of if we're going to keep it up, uh, I guess it depends on, you know, course load in college, um, film stuff that I'll be working on. You know, I, I hope to be a, a director one day um, and, you know, that, that's probably going to mean stepping away from Magic at some point. Um, but, you know, I'll always love Magic, and I'll always want to come back to the game, um, even when I'm really busy doing all that. Who are some of your influences in directing? Um, my favorite director is Christopher Nolan uh, for Inception and The Dark Knight. He also did uh, Memento and The Prestige. Um, he's, uh, he's kind of a very, uh, cold and calculatory director in that a lot of his films don't seem to have a lot of emotion on the surface. Um, but, you know, I think Inception and Memento are, uh, and even The Prestige are good examples of films that had a lot of emotion. Um, and, you know, he's, he's a great puzzle maker with his, uh, storylines and, you know, the way he made Inception, the way, the way he made The Dark Knight as, a uh, uh, the complexity of the storytelling is incredible, and the writing is incredible, and um, the, the general action is uh, some of the best. Um, but also, um, you know, I really like David Fincher um, for his work on The Social Network and Fight Club. Um, I think those are, you know, incredible, uh, more classic-style, uh, non-action-based films. Um, and, you know, I think The Social Network, uh, a lot of people look at it as Aaron Sorkin's movie. He... Uh, he wrote it, and he did. Uh, it's it's probably one of the best movies ever written. The dialogue is incredible, um, but you know, uh, David Fincher really has this way of communicating the characters and the character development. Um, and then I guess uh, Robert Zemeckis, who actually went to USC, is uh, he's an incredible director. Um, he made Forrest Gump, uh, incredible director, and incredible at uh, uh, explaining and. Um, you know, portraying emotion through um, through the characters, not just um, through Forrest Gump. And you know, Tom Hanks did an incredible job with Forrest Gump, um, but you know, through all of the characters and all the many layers of the characters, while uh, still having a very classic style. What would you do if you get done with school and you wanted to start doing film? What would you like to do in film? Um, so there's there's a lot of people that uh, there's some people that come out of uh, film school like uh, and they go to get a a job or they go directly to uh, YouTube um, or they end up on YouTube like uh, there's uh, the guy that did the Annoying Orange he uh, worked on MT he worked at MTV and he wants to do the Annoying Orange uh, there's Freddie W who does uh, some incredible effects videos. Um, there's Ray William Johnson who went to Columbia for film and then went to do YouTube. Um, and they do, uh, incredible jobs and, you know, they're really the, some of the top people on YouTube. And, uh, I think YouTube's great for that. It's great for having an audience. Um, and, you know, a lot of them, uh, like, uh, even, uh, Ryan Higa are going off to do, uh, real films. Um, and that YouTube is a great bridge from going to, uh, you know, uh, online media, it's a uh, real film. I'll say, here's the deal. I'm going to let you direct your own script. Who would you want in your movie and why? What actors or actresses would you like in your movie and why? Um, well, right now I have, I'm actually working on a, I have to do a documentary for my English class, um, in my documentary is actually uh, me and my friend are doing it, and it's uh, an explanation of a film that we would do if we had this huge budget because it's a very complicated idea. Um, and the idea is basically about it's uh, 
these it's a 70 year it takes place over uh, 70 years and has three main characters uh one of whom dies of old age because that's how uh that's how long the story is um and it's about the uh world's wide uh reform from uh the current capitalist mostly capitalist state to communism um which sounds i guess kind of weird kind of political non not emotional at all um but you know it's um, we have pretty much everything planned out from, it, it takes place from 2030 to 2100, um, and it's a, it's a really big story. Um, I think if there was, um, there's uh, three main characters, and the three main characters are a, a Chinese uh, senator um, who is working towards this uh, communist state, but really he wants, uh, what he wants to do is because when you're working towards a communist state, um, there's, there's never been a real communist state in the world. Uh, they've all been socialist states that have tried to uh, become communist, but never actually succeeded. And the reason is that the reason is because a communist state has to be self-sufficient and isolationist, which means that it has to be uh, one country. So the world would have to be one country. Um, and so while he's working towards this, and while he's uh, you know raising major taxes so that there's uh, there's basically no middle class, but all the poor. Um, the poor class has everything that they need and the rich class has everything that they need and more. Um, he's uh, split between the decision to, uh, you know, eliminate the poor class entirely or work for communism and make uh, all middle class citizen, uh, an entirely middle class society. And um, one of the kids um, who eventually overthrows him and uh, takes over his, his body he uh, actually he gets a skin graft to look like this man and impersonate the president. Um, in the end of the movie, he announces a world communist state, which is I, I know it sounds kind of weird, um, but uh, it's uh, you know it's a really it's a happy ending um, because of how it goes. And then the the third main character is a uh, he's kind of a he's kind of a side character, um, but he's a main character in terms of his. Uh, Position because he's uh, the you know the understudy to the um, the Chinese senator who becomes the president and the uh, friend of the other kid who eventually uh, announces this communist state. Um, and if I were to uh, pick the the three people involved with uh, this, I would uh, pick for the uh, the Chinese senator. I'd probably pick Ken Watanabe, who played uh, Saito in Inception. Um, and I think he was in the Dark Knight too. Um, and then for the uh, two kids, um, I'm not really sure because they would have to be. Uh, it would kind of be a Forrest Gump style thing where you have like Tom Hanks was in. Tom Hanks played Forrest Gump from when he was 18 to when he was like 50. Um, this would kind of be the same case because they would be playing the same character from like 18 to like 70. Um, similar to Curious Case of Benjamin Button. But uh, I guess if I had to pick, I would. Uh, one of them would probably be Tom Hanks, and the other one would probably be uh, Cillian Murphy, because uh, I think Cillian Murphy makes this uh, really good uh, kind of evil character who's uh, very subtly evil and kind of preppy. You said you wanted to do movies. Would you be interested in doing television? Um, absolutely. I, I think this is, uh, you know, me and my friend were talking about this, and um, we always kind of talk about, it sounds really weird, but we talk about communism and capitalism, like what would happen, um, you know, uh, in the current, the world, the way it is now, um, if it's possible that there would ever be communism. And he says no, and I'm saying yes, it would be possible. Um, and this story, it's because it takes place over seven years, it's so complicated. Um, he's like, well, you should just make this like a TV series when you get like, when you get to be like 30 and, um, you have like, you know, the resources and the fan base. Um, but uh, uh, one of my, my favorite TV show um, is Fringe. And I think that's, uh, that's uh, about as complicated as this, um, you know, more mainstream in terms of the ideas. And it's uh, a lot of people have seen it as a failing show or not a great show, and a lot of people don't watch it. But, uh, you know, Fox as a network really likes it. They just, re- uh, they just renewed it for a fourth season. It's, uh, it's an incredibly complicated show, which is, I guess is why it turns a lot of people off from watching it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a great show, and J.J. Abrams does. Um, he's an amazing executive producer. 
It's uh, J, uh, Jeff Pinker and J.H. Wyman, who are the uh, the other two executive producers who work on the uh, the show, are amazing at what they do. And I really wish I could, uh, you know, work on even the set of Fringe or, um, you know, as just as an intern, um, something, a project that cool and that big. You said one of my favorite movies is a movie called Battle Royale. It's a Japanese film. It's about the future of education in Japan and the fact is they have too many students and they come up with this system of eliminating students via putting them on an island and basically the last one that survives gets to come out of the island it's a very fascinating movie it's not it's very violent but it's a very fascinating movie showing how what people will do in situations that, you know, they're all kind of, they all kind of know each other because they're all kids and what people will do to survive and the conflict that the adults have in doing this. It's a very good movie. I think it's something you would enjoy. Right. Well, uh, I haven't seen it, but I'll, I'll, I'll definitely check it out. Um, yeah, I think the the problem with a lot of a lot of movies like this that want to like you know propose something like really radical is the way they're doing it. And you know, I think a film like this would have to they would have to it would have to keep from stating that it's about communism until the, the very last minute because communism is a very frowned upon thing. It's uh, very confusing to a lot of people um, as as a government, um, and you know. Uh, a lot of films that would try to do something this radical, you know, would, you know, put an R rating on a movie where there doesn't have to be one, where it could be PG-13 or, you know, put too much blood or sex or gore. Um, and uh, it's uh, it has to be approached very delicately, uh, like a, a film like that. For you to go out with your friends and date and do things like that come in. Yeah, I actually, I, I do that stuff too. <laughs> um, I'm in the, you know, because I do film stuff in the, the theater at school. Um, I've had some big parts in the play, uh, the plays, things like that. Um, not the musical, because uh, I can't sing. But uh, other than that, um, you know, I, I don't think I'm that good of an actor. And, you know, I don't think I'm uh, tall enough or good looking enough to ever actually be an, a, a main character actor. Um, but I, I really like acting in addition to uh, everything around film. Is it fun to be in front of the in front of the people or in front of the camera? Um, it it is. I just um I I you know I try to not think of it as I, I always like of something like you know someone who's like um trying to get the spotlight all the time. It's, like, very narcissistic. And, like, nobody in nobody in our theater company is like that at all. Um, everybody's, you know, really nice. And some of them play magic. And uh, actually a lot of the, a lot of the uh, guys that always get main characters um, in, the, in the plays, actually a lot of them play magic. Um, and I was, uh, it's kind of cool that we play magic, uh, watch films, um, and... Uh, or in the play. How does your family handle you being this busy all the time? Uh, right. <laughs> for the uh, for the most part, they hate it because um, you know there are some some days when I have to work on the show and it's it's due at Saturday at six p.m. And in order to get it done by Saturday at six p.m., there's like six hours of processing and encoding and stuff to get on YouTube even after it's entirely done. Um, so in order to do that, I'll stay up to like two o'clock on a Friday or two o'clock on a Saturday morning um, through Friday to get the show done sometimes and, you know, work with um, either Nick or Andrew, um, who are uh, Andrew does a lot of the editing, the picture editing, and the comics, um, which I think are great. Um, and Nick does some of the writing. So uh, I'll work with them like through Friday. It takes a long time. What else can you tell people about the show or about yourself that they may not know that they should know? Um, so the show's the show's changed a lot over the you know it's now over three years old. 
Um, I think if if you watched the show a long time ago and uh, uh, were annoyed by it or didn't like it um, or, or didn't think it was valid information, and I, I would totally agree with you for the for a lot of episodes, almost like the, the first year that we were doing it, we got you know almost all negative feedback, and that was okay um, because it it made me better at doing the show. It um, helped me find people that you know played magic and were into it as I was. Um, and help me uh, make the show better. And, uh, you know, after episode 100, I think we really got it rolling, and uh, it's, it's been a, a much better show since. Um, and in terms of about me, um, I, I promise I'm not as strict as I sound when I talk, um, and I, I talk really fast just to uh, get a lot of information in. Um and uh, I apologize if like, I'm ever talking to anybody and I sound condescending or kind of rude or arrogant. I'm really not trying to do that at all. Um, and uh, I hope I don't come off that way. Um, but aside from that, um, you know, I put a lot of work into the show. Um, and I'm really thankful for all the fans that I have, um, everybody that watches the show every week. Uh, thank you. Is that really fun when people say, I really enjoy the show. Can't wait for the next one. I mean, what does that make you feel like when you're part of this saying, it's a really great show. You need to keep doing this. It's, um, it's great. It makes, um, it makes the show a lot more fun to do. Um, you know, I, I really hope, uh, in terms of where the show can go, I, you know, I hope someday it, the audience expands, whether that means, um, even if that means moving sites from Blackboard or even though Blackboard puts up, they, they do put out incredible content. I really think that, um, the guys at, the guys at Star City Games and the guys at Channel Fireball do put out also incredible content. And, you know, um, to have an audience like that would be incredible. But, um, not, not to not like Porter at all because, um, they've been really, really nice about, uh, me missing lots of deadlines. And, uh, you know, if the, if we've had an off show or if we'd, if we said something that was a little, off topic or something that was completely incorrect or if like we had an extra Bane Slayer in our list by accident, um, they, they forgive us on that. They don't, uh, knock us for it. I'm really thankful for that. And you know, having the comments that say, thanks for the show, thanks for doing the show are a lot nicer than having the comments that are like, this show sucks. I don't want to watch it anymore. This is terrible. But you know, the, the people who just troll the, the videos eventually go away, right? I look forward to it, and I know a lot of our listeners look forward to it. Thank you. Um, yeah, to anybody who's who makes a makes a, a podcast, or to anybody who listens to podcasts, I, I encourage you to keep listening to every podcast on MTG Cast. Uh, make a podcast. Give constructive criticism. You know, just don't say outright that someone sucks. Um, but you know, as these uh, as there are more shows, and as the shows get more defined. Um, we get better podcasts every week. And, uh, you know, if you look at the, the first episode of Monday Night Magic to the, the current uh, episodes of Monday Night Magic, they're, uh, the, the current ones are so fluent and, uh, you know, so well done. And uh, you guys do a great job with uh, putting them together and having, uh, you know, not too many hosts step on lines, uh, step on other people's lines or anything. Um, and, you know, all the podcasters on MTG Cast do a great job. Keeps us in order. And in many ways, without him, I don't know if Monday Night Magic would be as good as it is because he is – every show has its personalities. Every show's got that dynamic personality, but there's always one person that kind of just brings it all together. And that's one of the things that Tom does for us on MTG Cast or for Monday Night Magic. As much as I would like to say to myself, oh, I could do that, it's very difficult to do what Tom does because he's able to deal with multiple personalities every week because he doesn't even know sometimes up to the show who's going to be on it, which makes it difficult. And that's one of the things that you don't have a problem with. Because you're the voice of the show, uh, Nick co-write the show, and then the other people put the graphics together for the show. It's kind of neat to have that kind of control. One of those things that just enjoy it, run with it, 
and there will be plenty of people out there that will enjoy keeping listening to it, whether it's on Blackboard, whether it's on YouTube, whether it's on MTG Cast, whether it goes to Channel Fireball, whoever. You know, as long as you enjoy what you're doing, then do it. Right. I think it's, uh, yeah, the, the difference between the video format and the audio format are uh, interesting because I think, on one hand, the video formats, uh, it's very direct. Um, you know, you get all your information, um, and we try to keep it pretty real in terms of what we're talking about. Um, but in terms of uh, how you're saying everything, it, it, it's all, it, it does sound kind of fake because it's all scripted, um, whereas an audio podcast, like you said, uh, there's all those personalities. Um, everyone does such a great job of, um, you know, there's the production quality on uh, uh, podcasts is uh, just great. Um, and the amount of time that everybody puts into audio and video podcasts is impressive. And um, it's those personalities that keep a, a good show, Monday Night Magic, like the A-Team running. Um, and like uh, every every show on MTG Cast, the Manipool, um, you know, these shows that have had 200 episodes that didn't falter after the 10th episode. Um, incredible. So what was it like the first time when someone came up to you that you were at an event or something like that and said, you're the guy from the professor's video show? What was that moment like? Uh, it, was, it was cool. The first time it happened was uh, at our local store. At one of the local stores because we've got uh, we've got two now and now they're in competition and I think one's gonna stop the other one from having magic tournaments because they're the undercutting prices and tournament uh, prices and everything. But um, it, it was you know I think it was around like episode thirty or something and we got like you know a thousand views per show or something. Um, and it was just somebody I was doing it I was uh, doing interviews and he just came up to me and he said oh, I saw your video show and I really liked it. So that was cool because. Um, you know, some magic players at a local store like give you like deck players um, before they start playing or when they start playing. And you know, when I was like 13, 14, I like I, I always thought those deck players meant like they had seen the show and they hated me. <laughs> um, it's kind of paranoid, but um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people have recognized me whenever I'm wearing a black border shirt. Um, I think Gerard Fabiano recognized me once. Uh, but I was, that was after I had interviewed him. Uh, so that was cool. And on that note, this is another episode of The Men of Magic with Robert and Anthony. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.